Amen. Well, good morning, church. If you would, go with me to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. Looking this morning at the life of Joseph from Genesis chapter 39. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. And so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And so, Holy Father, one last time we ask you to come and help us, Lord, to hear what your Spirit says to the church. Lord, we know that God's sexual sin is such a major part of this fallen world, and you have called us to lives of holiness. And so I pray for your people this morning that we would hear and heed to your word, and that you would purify us according to your spirit. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, many of you will remember this, we did a sermon series called Neglected Virtues. And in that series, we looked at characters uh, from biblical narratives, primarily in the Old Testament, and we, we preached on godly virtues that we saw exemplified in the characters but that we in our modern culture seem by and large to have lost. And I did a sermon on self-control from the life of Joseph. And one point in that sermon uh, dealt with sexual self-control from, this, from these 12 verses that we just read. And the sermon covered all of Joseph's life. And I remember thinking, man, there is just so much here in these 12 verses that deals with sexual temptation and how it works and how to refrain from sexual sin. 
And so I always sort of had my mind on taking uh, that point and turning it into a larger teaching or preaching a sermon that focused solely on sexual temptation from this story. And here we are, a couple of years later, uh, doing a similar series uh, from Old Testament narratives. But rather than expounding on godly virtues, we are looking at common problems. And so this morning, I want to talk about a problem that is largely taboo in the church, uh, but in all actuality affects us far more than how much we talk about it. And that's the issue of sexual temptation. And so my aim in this sermon is not to give a theology of sex or to even really talk about sexual sin. It's not to talk about the rampant sexual immorality that we see in our culture. Uh, We've preached those sermons. Uh, You can go and find those on our app. This morning, I want to keep the topic somewhat general, uh, but be very specific in my focus and discuss sexual temptation in the lives of Christians. Sexual temptation in the lives of Christians. And so sexual temptation is more general, and I would like to keep it general and, and not get too specific with the different types of temptation, but I want to focus specific, specifically on sexual temptation in the lives of born-again, regenerate Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who know what God's Word says regarding this issue, but still live in a fallen world and struggle with fallen desires. So I'm assuming a lot in this sermon. I'm assuming that we understand God's view of sex. And I'm assuming that we know the biblical warnings and consequences for sexual sin. So I really want to hone in on that concept of temptation in the lives of Christians. And so before we begin, I want to put just a few cautions before us. Number one, resist the temptation to say, well, I don't struggle with that. So this sermon must not be for me. Do not let the enemy have that kind of foothold in your life. The Bible is filled, brothers and sisters, with warnings and admonition about sexual sin. So that alone should cause us to pause and say, if God talks about it this much, my ears should be open to receive and to hear what he has to say even as he gives us victory in this area. Uh, Also, resist the temptation to sort of slump back in your seat, you know, and and begin to say, you know, why do we have to talk about this? You know, it's awkward, and I don't really want anybody to poke on me here. Uh, Again, avoid that temptation. It's not embarrassing. It's not something that we should just act like doesn't exist. The Bible speaks to this a lot. And our world speaks to this, and they don't speak about it the right way. And so we have to speak about it and think about it the right way in order to honor the Lord in this area. And also avoid the temptation to think that everyone in the room is looking at you. They're not, right? You are not the only one who's ever dealt with this. And I like to think of sexual purity on a spectrum, right? All, everybody is on this, this spectrum, this plane somewhere and past sins or maybe bad teaching on this topic or maybe no teaching at all on this topic, just sort of some ambiguity and all of these things. Uh, they affect us 
They affect where we are on the spectrum. And we are all sinners living in a sinful and fallen world with fallen desires. So it's like in some ways, we are all on the road to recovery regarding sexual purity. We're all pushing back the effects of the fall and the effects of sin in our lives in regard to this issue, even those of us who are in very happy and healthy marriages. We're constantly in need of renewing our minds and what the Word of God says. We're constantly in need of putting to death the old man and walking in the newness of life and putting away old thought patterns and old ways of believing. The ongoing process of sanctification hits hard on the area of sexuality. So I want to give us four points from this passage, uh, three with regard to the nature of sexual temptation and one with regard to resisting sexual temptation, because I believe that this text has a lot to say about this issue. And now I don't think that Moses intends Potiphar's wife to be a metaphor for sexual immorality. Right, I'm not arguing that we should allegorize the text, but what is clear is this. Genesis 39 is an inspired historical account. It actually happened. The Holy Spirit actually spoke this through Moses. And we see here how sexual temptation works personally in the lives of believers. And there's much that we can take from this passage and apply it to our own lives. So let's jump right in. Number one, Being in the will of God does not preclude sexual temptation. Preclude meaning make it impossible, right? It does not preclude sexual temptation if we are in the will of God. Look at verse 2 and 3. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. Joseph is in the will of God. Perfectly. He's walking in God's will. And in fact, it's the Lord's providential working that has Joseph here in this moment. Remember the narrative. Joseph uh, has these dreams, and, and his brothers get jealous at him, and he winds up in a pit, and he gets brought out of the pit and sold into slavery to the Egyptians. And God brings him to Egypt. Why? Because he's going to raise Joseph up to be second in command. And there's a famine coming. And Joseph is actually going to work to be a deliverer and a savior to God's people and keep them alive in a time of famine. This is God's plan, his ordaining work. And he's going to do it all to be faithful to his promise to Abraham. So Joseph is right where he needs to be. He's right where God wants him to be. And God is blessing all that he has put his hand to. And yet what happens? Sexual temptation still rises up in Joseph's face. So what's the application? Christians must not presume that if they are striving to be obedient to the Lord, and if God is blessing what they're doing, then they are somehow going to be free for the rest of their lives from sexual temptation. 
Now, I, don't want to, I do want to acknowledge that the Bible, especially in the book of Proverbs, teaches that the more we fear the Lord and the more we seek uh, to walk in his ways wisely, that we can expect sexual temptation uh, to, to come far and fewer between. It will be easier to withstand sexual temptation. That's a reality. This is very clearly laid out in Galatians 5.16, where Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And as we walk by the Spirit and yield to the Spirit and put to death the flesh, and we conform our lives to God's will in Scripture, I think we can expect the number and the prowess of sexual temptations to decrease. However, let us not think for a moment that our enemy will give up and that he will not seek to put before us sexual temptation to destroy us. Remember what Peter says about the enemy in 1 Peter 5.8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He doesn't say, let your guard down if you've gained some victory in this area because he'll leave you alone the rest of your life. He says, be watchful. He's out. He's prowling around. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your marriage, destroy your family, destroy your soul. Likewise, James 4.7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now we can look at that verse and think that it means that if we resist a few times that the devil will leave us alone and never come at us again. And I don't think that that's what the verse means. I think it means that as we gain victory over the enemy over and over and over, we, we put to death an already defeated foe. We gain victory over the enemy because he is defeated in Christ. Calvin, John Calvin says on this verse, he says, the promise which he adds respecting the fleeing of Satan seems to be refuted by daily experience. I agree with him there. For it is certain that the more strenuously anyone resists, the more fiercely he is urged. For Satan, in a manner, acts playfully when he is not in earnest repelled, but against those who really resist him, he employs all the strength he possesses. And further, he is never wearied with fighting. But when conquered in one battle, he immediately engages in another to this I reply that fleeing is to be taken here for putting to flight or routing. And doubtless, though he repeats his attacks continually, yet he always departs vanquished. The submitting to God and resisting the devil is continual. It doesn't just happen once at the moment of salvation. We continue to submit to God. We continue to resist the devil. And often, this is the case that when we walk more in the will of God, he attacks us harder and he comes at us harder and our lives get more difficult because he wants to knock us out. And that leads into the next and a similar point. Number two, sexual temptation is not neutral. Sexual temptation is not neutral. Look at verse seven. Verse 6, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. 
And then down in verse 10, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were with him, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. What I want you to see is this, Joseph is minding his own business. He's just working, doing what he's supposed to be doing, working hard in his master's house, and she seeks him out to put a stumbling block before him. Now, before I go any further, what I'm not saying is that Christians who fall into sexual sin or who come under temptation are just helpless victims, right? And we just kind of sit by passively and it just pounces on us all in an arbitrary fashion and we have nothing to do with it. Proverbs 7 tells of a man who is out of his house at night, wandering around the prostitute's house at night, and the prostitute seduces him and causes him to fall. But here, here's what I want to say, and I want everyone to hear me. As long as we are in this fallen world, brothers and sisters, we will be tempted sexually whether we go looking for it or not. None of us would disagree that we live in an overtly sexualized culture and that sex and body are idolized and immorality is celebrated. No no Christian would dispute that. And, And we need to acknowledge that and we need to be aware of how that affects us. But listen, while living in a sexualized culture may present more challenges and more overt occasions for sin, we cannot allow it to be an excuse. Because here's the thing, it's not like sexual temptation just goes away when people dress a little bit more modestly and act a little bit more, uh, behave a little bit better. And you say, give me an example. The children of Israel in the wilderness. You You remember the story? Moses brings the children of Israel out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness. This is in Numbers 25. And thousands of Israelites break God's commands. They begin to worship other gods and they begin to commit sexual immorality with foreign women under the encouragement of the false prophet Balaam. And God sends a plague on the children of Israel so that 24,000 of them die. And Paul, warning the church, warning the church at Corinth about sexual immorality, comments on this scene in 1 Corinthians 10.8. And he says, we... We, Christians, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now now think about this. Were the children of Israel living in an overtly sexualized culture? They were in the wilderness. There were no TVs. There were no billboards. There, There were no cell phones. There were no magazines. People were filthy and smelly, yet sexual temptation still sprang up. There were idols and false prophets and immoral women, but above all, their hearts were evil. So Paul says to the church in verse 6 in that same chapter, now these things took place as examples for us, for the church. Why? That we might not desire evil as they did. 
Do not underestimate how drastically the fall has corrupted our sexual desires. The fall has had major impact on us with regard to our sexuality. Because here's the thing, God created us to have natural sexual desire, to be expressed rightly and biblically in the confines of monogamous marriage between one woman and one wife for the sake of enjoyment and for the sake of procreation and filling the earth with image bearers. That's true. That's a reality. And before the fall, Adam and Eve would have had bliss here. They would have had harmony in their marriage bed. But soon after the fall, we begin to see the perversion of sexuality. We see in Genesis 4, Lamech taking two wives. We see in Genesis 6, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And it's a consistent theme throughout all the Scriptures, even to Revelation, that sexual temptation is one of the greatest hindrances to the people of God in being that holy priesthood that God calls us to be. Do not presume that you are above this. Do not presume that you are above this because here's the thing. You may not particularly struggle with passion and this burning desire, but but we know that when Christians fall into sexual immorality, the root is very rarely merely physical. There's usually bitterness involved and anger and a desire for revenge. And we have an enemy who's seeking to kill us. This can be so subtle, brothers and sisters, and he wants to destroy us. And we must know these things and be on guard and resist him and look to our Savior. Number three, sexual temptation often comes when we are alone. Verse uh, verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. So although Joseph is in God's will, and he's resisted Potiphar's wife day after day, here he finds himself in a situation that is ripe for sexual temptation. He's alone in the house with Potiphar's wife. And all the other men are outside, and she's pursuing him. She's after him. Her eyes are on him. I mean, this is what you call being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And here I want to linger on some biblical truths that if we will yield to them and allow them to shape our thinking, they will be extremely helpful to us in our fight against sexual temptation. So earlier I alluded to Proverbs 7. And in Proverbs 7, you have Solomon the father warning his son about the adulteress. And he's warning him, and listen to what he says in in verse 6 in in Proverbs chapter 7, the son to the father. He says, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. The young man is outside, 
at night when no one else is around, wandering around where there's sexual temptation. And listen to how she's described in verse 10. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market. And at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices. And today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you and listen, to meet you, listen, to seek you eagerly. And I have found you. She is not at home doing what she's supposed to be doing. She's out and about looking for men who likewise aren't at home doing what they need to be doing. Very contrary to the woman in Proverbs 31, whose feet are at home where she is working hard, where she is loving her husband and her family and being diligent. And instead of being exhausted from a hard day's work and getting to bed or being at home ministering to his family, this young man is out after dark walking around the adulteress's house. And also notice in verse 19, he said, she, uh, Solomon says, for my husband, the woman speaking, for my husband is not at home. He has gone out on a long journey. We don't know why he's gone, but I think from the context, we can assume it's not for a noble reason. He just takes a bunch of money with him and goes away for a long trip. So notice, none of the three people in this proverb are at home when they need to be at home. They're all out and about looking for something to satisfy them. None of them are satisfied with what God has given them. They're looking for someone or something else to make them happy. I want to say something to husbands and wives on this point, and then also to singles. First to husbands, brothers, God has called us to take dominion of the earth. He, he, he has called us to cultivate the earth, to work it, and to be a blessing with our work, and that requires us to be away from our wives for many, many hours over the course of our lives. That, that's a reality. We understand that. But God has not called us to build our own little kingdoms and just lead whatever life we want to lead. He's given us wives to love and serve and lead and to rejoice in. And I'm convinced that when Christian husbands fall into sexual sin, it's often a result of being distant from the wives that God has given us or angry at our wives or bitter at our wives and failing to delight in them the way that God, not the world, but God has called us to. Proverbs 5, 15 to 20 is extremely helpful here. Again, warning the son, Solomon, warning his son of sexual immorality. He says, to focus his intimacy onto his wife. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. 
A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Listen, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulterous husband's? Ask the Holy Spirit to to press this truth deep upon your conscience. That God has given you a wife to pursue and to romance and to love and to focus all of your desire onto her. Why should you be given over to the bosom of another? God has given you one to love, to delight in. And he says, my son, it is right. It is good. It is from me. This is a good thing. This week, I found myself in a situation, and I think this illustrates this to some degree, and Molly read, read over this, and we both agreed that it would be helpful to share. I, w- I was out praying at UWF. I, I try to make it a habit to go out and pray once a week, just outside, secluded, where no one's around, and just reflect and read the Scriptures and pray. And usually when I'm finished, I exercise wherever I'm at. And so this week I was at UWF praying and there's a track out there on campus with, a, with some pull-up bars. And so I thought, I'm going to go to the track and work out and after I'm done praying. And as I was driving to the track to park, I was pulling in and I saw for a split second from, from way back, from way back, I was still in my car. I saw for a split second some ladies running by who were just wearing very revealing kind of gym wear or, or sports clothing. And as I was driving up to park, I had read that morning Proverbs 7, and I was thinking about the sermon, and so my mind was renewed in this topic. And I thought, you know what? I just just need to go home. I just need to go home. I can work out at home. And so as I left and as I'm driving, this thought kept occurring to me, it's safe at home. The wife of my youth is at home. The lovely deer, the graceful doe, the one that God has given to me to love and to delight in is at home. And I'm extremely thankful to God for that. Husbands, we should be thankful every day for the blessing that God has given us in our wives. And for wives, the Bible commands your husband to pursue you and to delight in you and to romance you. And so that presupposes that you will let him and that you will encourage him and that you will be his helper. You are the only one who can be what your husband needs in this area. And for singles, you may be saying, okay, actually for me, home is the worst place to be. That's where I'm alone. And that's where the temptations are heightened And that's where I am often tempted. And I want to just acknowledge that in the season of of singleness, sexual temptation does seem to be heightened and more prevalent. In the least, it's in your face more. And it's necessary to acknowledge that. But here's what I would want to say. God's will is that sexual intimacy be experienced only in the context of marriage. This is his will, that we remain pure until he gives us a spouse. And so while the temptation may be heightened and more reoccurring in the season of singleness, it is not unusual. 
1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So single brothers and sisters, be prayerful about a spouse. Be open to a spouse. Eliminate unnecessary uh, temptations in your home. Obviously, when you go out into the world, you don't have a ton of control over that. But in your home, eliminate unnecessary temptations. We mourn that we live in a immoral world, but in your living space where you have control and authority, remove all obstacles for sexual sin in your home. And lastly, use the season of your singleness for good. Joseph was hard at work. He was about his master's business. And guys, this goes for everyone. This is just common sense. When we sit around and scroll through our phone all day, we should expect that sexual temptation might come and that it will be harder to resist. When we just lay around and sleep as late as we can, we should not expect this fight to be easy. We should be hard at work, wore out, exhausted, using our bodies and our time for good. And to conclude this point, guys, the Bible assumes that sexual temptation is real and that it will be an issue. That's why there's so much scripture that deals with this. And I'm talking about in the church. Read Paul's letters. He talks about this over and over again, warning about sexual sin. And so we would be wise to heed these warnings to know our weaknesses, to know the world that we live in, and to be as proactive as we possibly can be so that when the evil day comes, we can stand firm. Last point. Resisting sexual temptation comes ultimately through the fear of the Lord. Resisting sexual temptation comes ultimately through the fear of the Lord. Verse 7, back in our text. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. And here it is. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How can I do this great act of wickedness and sin against God? There are all kinds of secondary helps in fighting sexual sin. We've already talked about a few of them. We've talked about being proactive, not putting yourself unnecessarily in a position to be tempted. We've talked about having accountability with other Christians, using software and technology filters, getting married and delighting in your spouse, being busy and productive rather than idle. And there's books and there's studies and there's sermons. There's all these secondary helps that are good and we should use those. But here is the thing. And I want this to land on us. In Genesis 39, Joseph had none of these things. None of them. He was not married. He was all alone in a house with an immoral woman who was burning in lust for him. 
All the Egyptians were outside. They were very likely envious of him because of his success and favor. He didn't have a filter on his phone. And yet, he withstands Potiphar's wife's temptation. Why? Because he fears God. He has such a deep-seated conviction that although I might get away with it, they're all outside, she's coming on to me, I could get away with this. But he knows he won't really get away with it because he knows God is watching. God sees everything. Do everything you can, brothers and sisters, to fight sexual temptation. Use all the secondary helps you can, but at the end of the day, we cannot trust secondary helps because at times they will fail. And let's be honest, we can get around them if we really want to. We must have a deep-seated fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight, Proverbs 9.10. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, at the very least, it means to acknowledge that He is who He says He is. Holy, righteous, omnipotent, omniscient, watching us. And He's concerned about our lives. We are not deists. We don't believe God is just up there, but, but we're just kind of working it out on our own and He's disconnected. No, He's actually very concerned with how we live. He sees the work of the evildoer. He sees the the unnoticed work of righteousness. He sees it all, brothers and sisters. We must believe that He's watching us and that He will punish evil. There's no doubt, there's no wonder that in Proverbs 5, Solomon connects sexual purity with God's omniscience. He says in verse 20, Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? But then he says, For a man's ways are before the eyes of Yahweh. And he ponders all his paths. God sees everything. And no one will get away with breaking his law. And this is an all-encompassing worldview. This changes everything about how we live in every single way. This changes the way that we work when no one's around. This changes the way that we talk when no one's around. The thoughts that we think and the wise think this way, they know that all of life is before the Lord and they know that even if their sin could remain in secret, that it is not in secret. They heed Hebrews 10.31 that says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Christian brother or sister struggling with sexual sin, this may be what you are lacking. You may be saying, I've tried everything. I've had accountability partners. I've gone to counseling. I've read the books. I have the filters. And I keep struggling. I keep falling. It may be that you need the fear of the Lord. And so I want to give uh, two final exhortations and lead us to the table. And this is for every Christian here, whether the Lord has given you great victory in this area or whether you're in the midst of a hot daily battle. Number one, and this is most important, 
look to Jesus Christ and cling to the gospel. Your sexual sin has been nailed to the cross of Christ and he has defeated it and triumphed over it and your enemy. And so any sin that you are fighting is a defeated sin. Any sin that you confess and repent of is a defeated sin. You are objectively, by your union with Christ, free from sin. And it no longer has dominion over you. And Paul says in Romans 6, Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Christ. You have to view yourself this way. Because this is how the Bible describes you as a Christian. And it is out of this revelation that God gives us that we are able to walk in holiness. And number two, get alone with God and your Bible. Go to the Proverbs. Read these Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, and many of them over and over and over and cry out to the Spirit to press this truth upon your heart and your conscience. Wrestle with Him day after day until this becomes a reality in your life. How can I do this great act of wickedness and sin against God? Let that be your reality. Sexual temptation is a fight that is fought on many fronts. But if we are going to have lasting victory, we must fight the battle in prayer. And we must fight from a place of victory. In 1 Corinthians 6, after Paul says that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, he makes this astonishing declaration in verse 10. He says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And if you're in Christ, that's true of you, brothers and sisters. The starting place for our fight against sexual sin is that Jesus Christ has overcome it. He's overcome every temptation. He's overcome every sin. He's won the victory. He's reigning in heaven. He intercedes for you. His Spirit intercedes for you. And He's given you His Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body and live He is our victory. He is our conqueror. And He loves us. And so as you come to the table, look to Jesus Christ and what He has done. He's washed our our sins as white as snow. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank You that You have dealt with this issue sufficiently in Your Word. Lord, we acknowledge that we are weak and we are frail and we have an enemy that wants to destroy us and we live in a world that seeks to cause us to stumble. And so we look to your son alone and we pray for help in this area. We pray for purity, for holiness, for righteousness. And Lord, I pray for the one this morning who is in the midst of a difficult battle with sexual temptation, would you give victory? Lord, give lasting victory in this area and purify this church. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the God of peace 
who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.